Welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Brian Morrissey. This week, I am joined by Blake Sapatinelli, the CEO of Newsy, the streaming news network owned by Scripps. Blake and I discuss the opportunity Newsy sees in taking what it calls a nonpartisan approach to the news, informed by its just-the-facts Midwestern sensibility. And we also discuss the crowded OTT space and its inevitable consolidation. Hope you enjoy it. Okay, Blake, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, a lot of people know Newsy, but for those who do not um, explain what exactly Newsy is. Uh, at the risk of having a, a mouthful of jargony industry terms, uh, we're a TV network. Uh, but TV for us means a lot of different things. Uh, we're truly a multi-platform TV network, and I'll keep going into more and more industry jargon here. Okay. Um, you know, we got our start uh, as a mobile news app. We moved into white label video. We pivoted. So wait, when did you when, when did Newsy move from being focused on the the opportunity for video based news in a desktop and a mobile environment to moving to, hey, actually, you know, there's new ways to get on this big thing called a TV. Uh, so I took over the company about four years ago, and we were still producing a pretty significant amount of uh, desktop and mobile-focused video. I think we were, you know, doing two, three, four hundred million views a month on those platforms. But if you looked at what was happening in the VC space with the influx of cash that was coming in, and the compressing margins that were starting to exist uh, in the white label space, where we still played pretty heavily, uh, that was really the turning point for us. Um, we were Explain the white label space. Uh, you so said you were going to get into the in industry jargon, but I didn't think uh, you were going to. So we can go, we can go way, <laughs> way down the rabbit hole. So um, uh, white label is a fascinating space that exists or existed pretty heavily uh, up until, I would say, probably 2016, 2017, where the AI robots took over. So Wibbits and Watch it have done a good job of making news yeah. video and other people's brands. But before that, Real People uh, and Newsy was one of the big companies that did that, created news for other news or, or videos for other news okay, organizations. Yeah. And so we created uh, you know video news for Mashable and the New York Times, AOL, Time Inc, uh, under a number of their brands. Uh, we were really their newsroom for video. Um, yeah. it's, and it's a fascinating You see these auto-compiled, like, usually auto-played videos um, that people are using. Usually as an excuse to, to show some ads. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm not going to say that Newsy is partially responsible for the the, uh, <laughs> the large number of video players that you see on, on uh, you know, .coms at this point, but we were definitely a big player there. Um but it, okay. was, it was around then as we looked at, you know, there was a competitive landscape that wasn't favorable to our business anymore. Um, and I'm a TV guy by trade. Uh, I've been with uh, Scripps, uh, our parent company, for 12 years and worked on the digital and TV side with them. And as we were looking at opportunities that we had in front of us, we had uh, a growing but very small audience on Roku at the time, mm -hmm. which was really fascinating because the ad rates that we were seeing were astronomical, as was the average session time. I think at the time we were seeing session times in like the mid-20 minutes, which was freakish compared to mobile or .com where you're like, I got 50 seconds. This is a big victory for me. Sure. Uh, and we decided to... Uh, keep pushing forward. So we'd also, at the time, uh, I've built linear infrastructure in the past, and I had built linear infrastructure for Newsy and signed a deal with Sling TV where we were their first digital, digital first partner to come onto their platform. Mm -hmm. And everything else just kind of cascaded from there. Um, it was a risky bet for us because we had a business. 
Um, and it was a nice little business. But at the time, there were 30 of us in Columbia, Missouri, mm-hmm. uh, producing video in conjunction with the uh, Reynolds Journalism Institute at the University of Missouri. And uh, you know, fast forward to today, uh, we're a, a far different company, which I'm sure we'll dive into. Yeah. So w- let's fast forward to, to today. I've been to Columbia, Missouri, by the way. Nice town. It's a very hard place to get to. Uh, it is. It's very inconvenient. <laughs> I have to say there, there are exceedingly few direct flights to New York City. Um, I'm not waiting for that to happen. Um, but explain where Newsy is, though, today, as far as, you know, and, and give us figures to back up, like, where the, the kind of scale we're talking about. Oh, I would love to give you figures. Figures would be a fun thing to give you, but as part of a publicly <laughs> traded God. company, uh, we don't disclose that much information. But I can give you a few little nuggets along the way that I think were uh, uh, pretty uh, illustrative of what we're doing. So today we're a top five news app on pretty much every streaming or connected TV platform that you can find. And we're uh, talking programming. Programming. Uh, so we're, I mean, we're a news, we're a news. 24 hours a day programming. So we have two different programming streams okay. and I think that's important to make note of. So we have the premium side of our business, which is cable. So we have a cable presence. We're in 36 million homes. So you can find us on Comcast, Cox, et cetera. Probably not relevant to the Digi Day content, uh, to conversation here. Uh, where we produce 14 hours a day of live news coverage. Um, uh, as a derivative of that, we also have what exists in the the OTT or CTV ecosystem, depending on how you define it. I'll, I'll use the words, the acronym CTV, Connected okay. TV, in this yes. instance, to make sure we're super clear. Uh, and there you find uh, a couple different uh, iterations of our product. We have top stories by Newsy, which you can find on... Uh, platforms like Pluto, Roku Channel, and others. And that's a, uh, a shortened uh, linear wheel that we program mm-hmm. and deliver to those platforms. This is free for people. They, they, they open up their Roku and they, they, go to, they want to catch up on the news. They want to catch up on the news. We were one of the first partners with Pluto as well. Uh, right. you know, they used to build most of their programming off the infrastructure of the YouTube API. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were one of the first ones that came in and said, we'll provide you our programming. And the business model is, is these folks pay you, or how does the business model work? It depends on the platform. So on the on the pay TV side of the ecosystem, we do collect carriage fees, and we have advertising-supported elements of that business as well. Just That's like great. Any, You're getting paid multiple ways. Getting paid twice is uh, almost as good as getting paid three times. <laughs> um, uh, but we're a, big fan of, we're a big fan of the model as a whole. On the, on the connected TV side of the business, it's advertising-supported. And to your point, this is people who are coming in, uh, no matter where they're watching, that want to get caught up on the news. Mm-hmm. So for us in the O&O ecosystem, our own apps, um, we know there's a large number of people who are looking for a different approach to news. Um, and today you can find us you know, right next to ABC, CBS, NBC, and in many cases ahead of CNN in this ecosystem. And they just, they're coming in, they're getting caught up, they're serving mm-hmm. ads, and it's turned into a really nice business for us along the way. So which is like a larger source of audience? Maybe you can answer this. The sort of linear TV side or the CTV side? CTV right now. Okay. And that's growing faster. It is growing faster. I mean, look, when we got started in the CTV ecosystem, it was super nascent. And this wasn't a mainstream product of any way, Mm -hmm. shape, or form. Roku was really just starting to hit their stride. Fire TV was just now coming out. The best thing that you could really find as far as broad, broad distribution at that time was like a Samsung platform. And so we, we placed our bets there. And as a first mover in that space, we've been able to build audience and build share along the way, which is a good thing because competition is mm-hmm. definitely starting to increase. NBC just released a product. CBS is obviously continuing to double down with their efforts. ABC just released a product. CNN saying they're going to release something for the streaming ecosystem by 2020. So for us, making sure we were there early has been a huge competitive mm-hmm. advantage because we've already built audience. We've already built scale. 
And now for us, it's about accelerating that side of the business while growing our linear uh, footprint. Right. But I mean, I would guess like, you know, there's there's also the brand competition, right? You got to build a brand at, at, that, you know, can compete against all of these extremely well-entrenched uh, brands. Well, based know. on our research, everyone knows what Newsy is and no one knows what ABC, CBS, and okay. NBC is. <laughs> uh, so I think we're in a really good position. But to your point, in all seriousness, yeah, it's a huge it's a huge challenge for us. Getting people to know who we are, what we do, and what our brand position is. So what is the brand? Let's get into the brand position. Um, we've got like CNN blaring on like uh, several TVs here in the office. Um, different offices probably have um, Fox News blaring. Um, and still different offices probably have, have MSNBC um, on all day. Um, how do you differentiate in this, this kind of world? Uh, I think it's pretty simple at this point, uh, especially in the TV ecosystem, because partisan politics have worked their way so far into television that I've noticed a little bit, just a hair, right? <laughs> um, uh, that uh, when there is an absence of it, uh, it's a pr- pretty clear difference to the user. Uh, we take an anti-partisan position, which is an interesting. Is word. that possible? I do actually believe it is, and okay. let me explain what that yep. means um, because I think there's a huge distinction between between presenting both sides anti-partisan and not providing uh, an opportunity for both sides to have their talking points be delivered. And that's really where we come in. There's a difference between what a major cable news network does or a Sunday morning show where there's a policy position that's given. Mm-hmm. And on one end, they bring in a RNCPR flack or a, a campaign operative. And on the left side, they'll bring in yeah. the head of the DNC, whose entire job it is to crap on a policy position. It's all variations of crossfire. They've just separated the, the two sides. Or, you know, pardon the interruption or any yeah. other sports argument <laughs> yeah. show, uh, which is not really a productive style of conversation for the American news consumer. So what we try to do in, in a true anti-partisan fashion is present you with the facts, bring you relevant and contextual information and data along the way. Data reporting is a huge part of what we do. Investigative reporting is a big part of what we do. Instead of paying pundits, we pay investigative reporters which is a big key differentiator for us. Mm-hmm. And then we do what news organizations are supposed to do. We let people make up their own mind about what that mm-hmm. means. So you don't, have, you don't have the slate of opinion um, programming that's like, it's quasi-entertainment, really, if you look at what's going on at, at, you know, Fox, MSNBC, and CNN all really have, you know, their prime time is, is it's opinion programming. It's infotainment, it's opinion programming, and it's all, sen- it's all there masquerading as news. Uh, because they do a bad job of providing a distinction between what's actually news and what isn't news. Mm-hmm. News is not a PR flack pres- providing their viewpoint on a subject when they have a clear motive to presenting that 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 viewpoint forward. That's not what news is. That's opinion. And if you don't draw that line, if you don't distinguish that for your audience, then it's no longer news anymore. It's just talk. It's talk radio. Right. Yeah. Um, and give an example of that, of a topic, because I think it's I think a lot of people talk about um, being nonpartisan, as you say, anti-partisan. Um, but right or wrong, it, it seems a little bit more difficult to do these days with and um, and maybe you disagree about, um, you know, with some of the issues um, that come out. Um, you know, there's there's some people they, people are disagreeing on just, you know, basic facts. Um, so. Uh, how do you give an example of an anti-partisan approach to an issue that is treated, in your mind, in a very partisan way by um, 
the 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 competitors. I think immigration policy is probably the thing that comes top of mind. Okay. Um, it's pretty straightforward to provide clear statistics that are provided both by the government, by NGOs, and by um, other organizations that are sitting on both sides of our southern border right now that can paint a picture of either how big the crisis is, how little the crisis is, and what the impact to America may be. Um, we, that's what we attempt to do. Hey, here's the clear numbers. There was X number of people who tried to, to cross the border. Here are the number of people that were detained. Here's where these people are being detained. Mm -hmm. And here's what the government says they're doing about it. Those are pretty clear positions. The other side of it is um, you would put together a panel of people who half of them are going to say this is a travesty, which unfortunately this is a horrible humanitarian situation that we're facing. And the other part of it's going to say, we need to do more, we need to kick more people out, and this is terrible, and I have a negative a viewpoint of this. Providing the facts for, first and allowing people to, especially people of, of my generation, our target audience is that 25 to 44, kind of the late stage millennial, early Gen X person. Mm -hmm. um, I usually like to say that I'm the, the, the typical viewer. Because uh, I'm 37, I have two kids, I live in the burbs. I also have a smartphone, and the first thing I do when I hear something that I find interesting is go looking for a secondary source. It's not the job of the news media to provide a secondary and a tertiary source or opinion. It's our job to present forward facts and information mm -hmm. and then allow people to come to their own conclusions based on further research or for us to provide additional clear, conclusive evidence that something is right, wrong, or mm -hmm. indifferent. So Newsy, is, it, it's Midwestern in its DNA. We are. Yeah, we sensible. Are. Uh, we like to think that... <laughs> Even killed. We like to think that Newsy is the friend that you can call who will give you their honest opinion on something, um, which is ironic because we don't really have opinions. But everyone has that friendly Midwestern friend, um, and we stay rooted in the Midwest uh, because we think that sensibility is important. Um, there's a whole lot of people, something like 62% of the people that don't live on the coasts. Um, and I think they need a voice too. We learned in 2016 that the Midwest is pretty important. Yeah, uh, everyone seemed to have forgotten about the you know hundreds of millions of people that live in these in these areas. And um, having a presence in Columbia, Missouri, we still maintain our headquarters there, uh, and we still maintain a large news operation there. Having our live operations based out of, of Chicago, uh, which is a wonderful city, and is while it's cosmopolitan, is still very much rooted in you know the Midwest. And having uh, an, an additional presence in uh, both Denver and then myself in Cincinnati, where uh, our parent company's headquarters is at, I think really just kind of reminds us of who we're talking to. We're talking to sensible, everyday Americans who mm -hmm. are just looking for facts. So who do you end up looking at as your main competitive set then? I mean, do you look at like the CNN and, and Fox um, uh, an MSNBC as the competitive set or something different? Uh, I think they're definitely our primary competitive set. We have a long way to go to get to the to the scale that they're at, especially in the linear TV ecosystem. So linear is still incredibly important part of this. I think linear is important for anyone who produces any form of television. Um, you know, we, we briefly talked earlier about disaggregation before we started talking into mm -hmm. the microphones in a very calming manner. Um, but disaggregation is happening at a rapid pace on, in television. 
But just because disaggregation is taking place doesn't mean that there's still not 80 million people yeah. are subscribing to pay television. And when you're saying disaggregation, you mean like it used to be you could reach everyone through linear and now there's this like incredibly confusing, you know, bundle system. There's there's skinny bundles, there's fat bundles, there's medium sized bundles. There's, there's bundles of bundles. There's SVOD, there's uh, AVOD, there's FAST, which is my favorite new acronym. In, FAST, yeah. V-A-S? No, FAST, Free FAST. Ad-Supported Television Services. Okay, that's like Pluto. Yeah, you got it. I All think right. I think one of your reporters is uh, one of the ones that uh, coined that one, which made okay. me chuckle, and I'm like, I'm using that's this great. forever. That's great. We could do like a WTF on it. Good um, job, Sahil. Figure out how to monetize it <laughs> somehow. Um but explain this. What what is going on now with this this FAS um, system? Because it's you know from Seahill's reporting, it seems like there, this is like a big um, battle. I think a lot of people when they when they think about streaming, they immediately go to to Netflix and sort of like um, that that level. But you know, there's still a battle for free. Free programming is not going anywhere. People like free. It's a good. It's a compelling. Um, value proposition. I mean, there's free growth all over the place at this point. It's not just growth in the internet-based sector either. We also, uh, as an enterprise, own Kate's Networks, one of the largest multicasters, which means they're picked up over the antenna. Share of yeah. uh, share of viewing. I have an is, antenna. Share of viewing there is exploding too. Um, <laughs> I'm a big I'm a big believer in the antenna. And the video quality is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, no compression is an amazing thing. <laughs> uh, but on the fast side, I mean, you have platforms like Pluto who have 16 million viewers according to Viacom's latest numbers. Yeah. Roku Channel has access into something like 29 million registered users, um, and it's all free, kind of like TV used to be. And as people are becoming increasingly fed up with the the expense that's coming along with video packages, they're still looking to watch television. Um, I remember years ago when Pluto was getting started and they had a traditional TV guide and people were like, well, why the hell would they do that? This is a whole new world. We shouldn't be yeah. sticking to... It's apps. We, yeah, we shouldn't be sticking to you know known conventions. People know what a channel guide is. Yeah, they like it. And they really, really like it. And you know what? I like watching a whole channel of hockey fights, too, alongside Newsy. It makes me happy. Um, I didn't know that existed. I might, I might be into that. I think hockey fights, I don't know <laughs> I don't know if they still have a channel. And if Tom Ryan's listening, he needs to add it back. Yeah, it, would be a, it would make me very happy. Okay, so in this world, we're talking about, like, the, the, the Pluto TVs. Roku has its own um, sort of free free tier, right? That's, that's correct. Who else are the big the big players there? I think everyone, uh, Stir is starting to make a push with Sinclair. Uh, I think every major platform is trying to make a push TV Plus on Samsung, which they have. But a, Apple and Amazon do not have their own sort of um, free streaming network. Not that they've you know shared with the public yet. Yeah. Uh, so we'll see. We'll but see that when. would be a possibility. That wouldn't be like, oh my God, that's crazy. It would not be the world's craziest thing. I mean, Amazon just bought Seismic and they're clearly building a, a large ad infrastructure and trying to take share of voice away from Google and Facebook. Okay. So probably wouldn't be surprising. So how are you able to charge carriage fees? Um, I would think like it would, um, I mean, carriage fees are, they were great in the cable TV world. Um, but I would guess that the economics would change when it goes into the CTV world, um, where they would just say, hey, look, um, you know, you can make it on at on ad revenue, wh why should we pay you up front? Yeah, in the ad-supported side of the connected TV ecosystem, so apps, platforms like Pluto, Roku Channel, we don't get carriage fees. That's all okay. ad-supported. We get carriage fees from uh, pay TV providers because we put a different product in place there. You know, 14 hours of live news coverage every single day. 
long-form documentaries, long-form series. They, they cost money to produce. And as we're putting forth a premium product for those platforms, we have to make sure that uh, you know it's worth them paying for. The future of television is You don't just, see those going away, the carriage fees. I don't see carriage fees going away. I also don't see carriage fees being a significant growth engine for any new uh, upstart cable network. Matter of fact, I don't see a whole lot of upstart cable networks coming anymore. That's the re- we uh, really did the most ironic of all purchases. We're a millennial-focused news network. We purchased retirement living televisions, carriage agreements. Uh, we had a ton of really angry old people emailing us, and we flipped the <laughs> channel. Um, but it was our way to stick our foot in the door because the reality is, is pay TV providers don't necessarily want more channels. They want fewer channels. They want to pay fewer carriage fees. Uh, they're looking to you know streamline down from 350 channels down to the 150 that people watch most. Um, so as new networks come online, I don't see if new networks end up coming online, I don't mm. see a huge appetite in the pay TV space for people to be like, I'll give you a buck a sub. Right. Okay. How, how similar do you think your model is or their model is to yours with Cheddar? John's um, been on here before. Um, I'm I, I've been known to be Cheddar curious, and I take a small. Uh, small pride in in helping to get cheddar on uh, gas pumps nationwide. I saw uh, the Blockbuster <laughs> article that you guys did after he tweeted you um, uh, for the exclusive. Um, I think it's two totally different models. Uh, John's a great guy. He built a hell of a business. Uh, but John's entire model is predicated on sponsored content. Um, Scripps is a journalism-first enterprise. We've been around for 141 years and always have been leaders and innovators in journalism. And for us... Um, the model's ads, just regular ads, ad yeah, insertion. The, mo- the model is regular old ads uh, because we have to separate our, our deep dive contextual and investigative journalism from you know, Dunkin' Donuts, uh, who we do business with. And we've done sponsored business with, but it's in a far different style than you would get in a, on another network. Mm-hmm. But the distrib- the, that's the monetization side. But the distribution side, it, there are some similarities, right? I mean, you guys want to be everywhere, right? There's, a, there's this disaggregation going on. Um, you know, um, maybe Cheddar goes like heavier into the, the, the you know, out of home area <laughs> with gas pumps or nail salons or whatever. But um, you want to get on as m- many of these screens as possible. Yeah, I mean, look, in order to raise your brand recognition and get people to see you as a brand that they need to tune to on a regular basis, you have to be everywhere that they are. Yeah. And that includes, so for instance, we're in Captivate Elevators. So that's what, 17,500 elevators. We've got Captivate here. Uh, You'll see Newsy show up on occasion, which is great. Yeah. Uh, We're in the back of Ubers. Uh, We're on Reach TV in airports. Uh, and uh, we're in a litany of other out-of-home places because we have to make sure that those brand impressions are getting delivered. But is that like marketing for, or, or that's not, is that like real like monetizable distribution or is that like, oh, you know, there's there's Newsy. Like, I mean, like I, I live on the East River and there's like the, these boats that go by with like ads on it and now they're like carrying some like programming um, I feel like I need to put a newsy board there now just <laughs> exactly. to aggravate you. <laughs> Won't aggravate me. I mean, aggravate me. Uh, aggregate me. Huh? Um, you know, I, I mean, there's, is this, this isn't a way to like make money. It's just, it's a way to build up the newsy brand. In my opinion, it is not a way to make money today. It's okay. a, it's a way for these out of home providers have monetization models that make sense for them. For us today, it's a marketing play. This is a brand impression play. 
long-term, especially as the programmatic ecosystem starts to evolve and mm-hmm. out of home, I think there could be a real opportunity, especially for you know sound off, text on screen content that exists everywhere. Yeah. But today, the market's not quite mature enough, in my opinion. Okay. So most of your monetization on the ad side, these are just these are ads you sell directly. That's correct. So we have a sales team here in New York, and our distribution teams here in New York, and so they sell both directly and programmatically. And I. Uh, I'll toot my own horn here because I think we were pretty early on in the uh, ad enablement space. Um, we've developed in our own in-house proprietary technology to help ad delivery. We were developing, we were, we were delivering server-side ads in a linear mm-hmm. stream four years ago, um, which is not really heard of at that point yeah. in time. Is the infrastructure somewhat behind? I mean, like everything is moving to these connected TV, and then it's the the ad infrastructure and. Um, depending on the on your experience in CTV, one of the sort of standouts is you know is just basic stuff like frequency capping doesn't seem to even exist, or you wonder what kind of demand there is for the ads because you're seeing the same ones constantly. Um, how far behind is the ad infrastructure there? I think um, when you compare it to traditional television, we're still probably three to five years away from where we need to be for. Uh, ease of use and trafficking in ad repetition and creative separation in program separation. You know, the basic things that we've been working out on cable and broadcast television for the better part of 50 years, we're trying to figure that out now. And we're doing it in many cases with ad servers that were built for display advertising. Right. Freewheel's much further along in some of the connected TV ecosystem. Google's definitely doing a good job of uh, playing catch up. But make no mistake, these these ads were really, these ad engines were built for products that we're not really playing on right at this point in time. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of standardization across the industry that has to be done. And there has to be a consensus on things like ad ID. If we were just able to put an ad ID within, uh, you know, and consistently use it across uh, an ad that's trafficked across 50 different DSPs, we could get rid of some of these problems because the reality is, is I have an advertiser that's buying me on Talaria and SpotX directly through Freewheel through someone else. And yeah. as a result, these you'll run into a problem where a bid comes in and we're taking the highest bid in the programmatic space and there's no creative separation because no one's saying, hey, that's a Subaru ad and mm-hmm. that's the same Subaru ad and that's the same Subaru ad down here. So... There's definitely a lot of work to do. So in this space where it's sort of digital meets TV, will the, the ad ecosystem develop more like the digital ad ecosystem is, you know, starting in desktop? Or will it evolve to be more like the TV ecosystem is? My belief is like the TV ecosystem, and here's why. Uh, the technology that's being developed right now for digital ad replacement in traditional linear tele- television is pretty fascinating. Um, you know, automated content recognition already exists. Uh, Vizio has it. Samsung has a huge platform for it. And the ability to replace ads is just around the corner. In order to gain the trust of those TV buyers who have been used to doing things the same way for the better part of 30 years, we're going to have to have the rigor in place that they expect. And as we start to replace traditional advertising with higher yield one-to-one advertising, to take those dollars from the broadcast and cable market mm-hmm. and put them in place, we're gonna have to have creative separation. Right. We're gonna have to have all the checks and balances that exist 
Yeah. Uh, you got to do the blocking TV. and tackling. I mean, it's yeah. just expected, right? It is expected. And we're getting there. And industry is starting to kind of coalesce around this effort to get it done. Uh-huh. But work has to be done. Okay. Um, last thing is on the distribution side in this this um, free streaming world, what are sort of the big moves that you would be looking for in the next, say, six months? Uh, so I think there's a couple different parts of the streaming ecosystem that we're trying to attack. There's the paid side of the of the streaming eco- ecosystem, and we're trying to make sure that we finalize our distribution on all the virtual MVPDs. Uh, we're on a majority at this point, but we still have a few more to go, and we want to make sure that we're ubiquitous in that space. And we're talking about? Sling, okay. YouTube TV, which we're already on both of those, Hulu Live, et cetera. On the free side, it's making sure that we're identifying opportunities and as they come up, as audiences are starting to grow, mm-hmm. and there's a limited channel selection, especially as these new platforms come and uh, you know come to fruition and go to market, that we're in place and we're available for viewers. Um, our goal long term is to make sure that we're aggregating these audiences, no matter how small the platform or how large the platform, and aggregating these impressions and viewers, both across the digital side of our business and the traditional linear side of our business, and that we're selling a single currency-based CPM audience. Nielsen's getting close to being able to do what we need them to do. And the reality is, is it's okay for me to have 40 million cable homes if I also have 40 million homes that exist on the other side. And we can do one-to-one targeting in one space and broader targeting on the other side and still a holistic audience at a higher CPM. So Yeah. But do you expect the free streaming side to be more dynamic over the next six months to 12 uh, or to, to a year? It could be. Uh, it's hard to get these things up and running. You know, Pluto spent like five years getting their platform up and running. It's not exactly cheap, easy, or, um, you know, uh, just a walk in the park here to yeah. get one of these up and running. I think you'll see a lot of competitors start to pop up. So I think what's interesting is is for you, like operating in this space, it's completely different from a publisher in the, the regular digital publishing ecosystem, which is just completely ruled by by Google and Facebook. There's there's not a lot of leverage that publishers have. But at least this seems like you have a nice situation here and that there's a lot of different people vying for it. And so that's usually good, you know, to be a player in that kind of ecosystem. You don't think it's going to coalesce around a couple of platforms just dominating it? I do think it will, but what's been interesting, and the, but the same things happen in traditional television. Uh, what you see with Roku and Amazon and others doing at this point is creating a wall garden. One of the reasons we like linear television is it's a walled garden. Do you like walled gardens? I, I think walled gardens are fascinating. Walled gardens are great because they allow people who have premium content to sell in a premium ecosystem. Uh, and it limits a lot of the control that's exerted by the big tech pl- platforms. And it also limits the amount of... Um, fraud that comes into the ecosystem. It limits too much inventory coming into the ecosystem. It allows there to be value retention along the way for everyone that's involved mm-hmm. in the chain. Okay, so it sounds like there's going to be fewer of these little skinny bundles around. Like at some point it has to to rationalize. I mean, all markets rationalize to like three, four, maybe it's five. Generally so. Okay. Yeah, I, I think there will be consolidation both on the virtual MVPD side as well uh, You know, on these you know, standalone streaming platforms, whether it's a free or an app, uh, app-supported ecosystem, uh, you know, to like a standalone app. Because the reality is, is 5,000 channels doesn't make sense. Uh, you know, 300 channels probably makes sense. So you'll see more and more consolidation, people gobbling each other up, and there's generally more uh, coalescing. Got it. 
Okay, Blake, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you all for listening. This week's episode was produced by Gianna Capadona. I hope you head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. This helps us uh, get discovered by new people. If you have any feedback, you can always uh, email me. I am brian at digiday.com or you can tweet me. I am at bmarcy on the Twitter. Um, thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode.